You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Well, hi there. My name is Alvin Brown, and I'm the pastor of Guest Experience and Technology here. And welcome to Mosaic. If this is your first time in the room, or you're joining us online, or you're just rejoining us, I hope everybody had a happy Thanksgiving, a good Thanksgiving. And so as you heard real quickly here in the video, uh, we are kicking off our Christmas season with Project Christmas. And so we are excited to invite everyone, that's you, that's you, we are excited to invite you all to, to stop by our lobby, Go and grab um, an ornament off the tree or visit our website online for those of you that are joining us online today. So, But as for our moment here today, let's go ahead. We're going to jump in, and I'm so glad you're here because we are continuing in week three of our series, You Might Regret That Later where we are exploring how the gospel empowers us uh, to live better lives with fewer regrets. And so today, we'll discover how regret can either crush, uh, disconnect, and hold us and others back relationally, or we just might actually find out how it can lead us and others to repentance, that is, a turning to God to rediscover renewed action, purpose, and relationship with God and God's people. And the church said... There we go. You're getting this. You're getting there. So last week, we explored how to live better stories with fewer regrets and how we choose to respond or not respond through the lens and life of David, the king of ancient Israel. And this week, we'll continue to examine the life of David and how regretful sins impacted not only his and others' lives, but future generations too. So I invite you to stand with me right now and ask as I'm going to read today's scripture from 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 14, and it reads, The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a, such a thing and had no pity. Then David said, or rather Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if this, if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out 
of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die, but because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die and let all God's people say amen to the reading and the hearing of God's word. You may be seated. Now, for those of you that are taking notes today, the title of this message is From One Regret to the Next. From One Regret to the Next. And here we are. Here we are, hot off the press of a post-Thanksgiving meal discussion about regret. (laughs) Regret. And let me guess, just hearing that R word, regret, it likely triggers thoughts about the, the one or two, okay, who am I kidding, three or four additional plates that perhaps we can confirm or not deny that we devoured days ago. Amen? And if not for the tasty Thanksgiving samplers with naps and stretchy pants included, then likely your bank account has regretfully been held hostage by the steals and deals of Black Friday, Small Business Saturday, or or just maybe Cyber Monday and Giving Tuesday, which they're both on deck ready to, you know, siphon whatever little dollars and cents you have left. But as for me and my household, no, as for me, when I think of the word regret or the phrase from one regret to the next, one story in particular comes to mind. I mean, come on, guys. You knew it's me. I'm going to bring you a story, right? That's what I do. Picture it. 26 years ago on a cold Thursday night in Burt Burnett, Texas, a five-foot-five, dark and handsome Freshman football player stood at the five-yard line awaiting a kickoff return in the last and final game of the season. And if you hadn't caught on by now, it was yours, truly. And so as I stood there warming and rubbing my hands together, I faintly heard our JV head coach, Coach Ed Hunt, God rest his soul, I hear him yell from the sidelines, great one, and that's what he affectionately referred to me as. He said, great one, catch the ball, wait for the call. Catch the ball, wait for the call. Boom. The ball goes into the air, and as the ball sailed into the air that night, all 120 pounds of me with rocks in my pocket, of course, I began mumbling to myself, catch the ball, wait for the call, as I was trying to best position myself for a clear running lane to the end zone. And so out in front of me, were, it was a wall of maroon jerseys that were providing me protection. And so I yelled out loudly, roll, to let the teammates know that the ball is live and that it's been caught as I began to speed up and wait for the wall call to either be left, right, or center. Then before I knew it, the wall call was made, right. Now listen, moments before, I had sped down the, the, the sideline there going left to return a kickoff and a punt return. So what did I do? I regretfully jumped the call and went left, right into the sea of opposing white jerseys. Now if that wasn't enough and if things weren't already going downhill and downhill quickly, 
my regretful judgment in jumping the call grossly birthed my next regret, attempting to hurdle a defender who was trying to hit me at the knees. Now listen, y'all, I was a regional qualifier for the 300 meter hurdles, so I figured, I figured I could hurdle the defender right into the out of bounds of sideline safety and be okay. But see, here's what happened. I, I, I went to lift off and I got into the air and bam! I was blindsided by a defender that I never saw coming. And the next thing I knew, for some strange reason, the field flipped upside down. And the guy that was looking at to hit me in my knees, I'm looking at him and we're looking at one another, but he's upside down. And then all of a sudden I hear a snap, a crackle, a pop, a thud, and I can't breathe. I had fallen on the ball and knocked the wind out of myself. Well, needless to say, I made it out of bounds, all right? Sure did, with the help of my teammates coming to get me from the opposing team's sideline, carrying me back to our sideline, sit me on the bench, and then they draped me with the little hooded cape, and that's where I sat. Yeah, it's funny now. It wasn't funny that night that it happened, though. But about three minutes and some change roll off the clock. Coach Hunt yells, punk return. Y'all, I didn't even move from the bench. I looked at my backup. I was like, yeah, Doc, you go on here. You got this one. You can take this one for the team because I'm sitting this one out. Well, then coach realizes that I didn't return the punt. So about a minute later, he comes over to me. He puts his arms around me and he smiles and he says the following. He says, come on, great one. Don't let this moment get you down. Just catch the ball, wait for the call, and you'll be back in the end zone in no time. Now, do you think coach would let you get hit on purpose? To which I respond, listen, coach, I, listen, I know I'm not going to get hit. Number one, whether on purpose or on accident. Why? Because I'm not going back into the game, sir. Not me. Not going to do it. And after that night, guess what I did? Yep, you, yep, you guessed it. I gladly but regretfully hung up my cleats and the basketball and track and field. That's where I resided until I graduated. And so what happened that night? Why did I have a regret about that night? Better yet, what is regret and what does it mean to regret? And more importantly, how can regret either get you crushed like it did me or disconnect and hold us back from others relationally? And yet, how can it actually lead us to repentance? Well, as for regret and its challenges to us relationally or leading us and others to repentance, just sit tight. We'll get to that in a moment. But as for what regret is and what does it mean to regret, see, therapists and counselors, they'll often tell you that regret is a negative emotion that occurs when a person believes his or her past actions, if changed, may achieve a better outcome. Or said another way, regret is an essential psychological construct related to decision-making, coping, and learning. And while regret can sometimes positively impact or introduce positive change to our lives, see, regret more commonly is associated with negative effects that it can have on our overall well-being. So, for instance, regret can derive from or it may lead to anxiety caused by repeatedly thinking about the perceived better choice or behavior. It can also lead to chronic uh, feelings of sadness and, and dysphoria, as well as varying degrees of guilt, shame, anger, and pride, to say the least. And lastly, it leads to a bias in one's decision-making or resulting in poor choices being made being made, excuse me, as I did that night. And so, 
See, that night, it really wasn't regret that was troubling me. It was the sin of pride. See, that's what led to my consecutive regretful and crushing you know, decisions returning the kickoff that night on the football field. But hear me when I say this. See, to regret does not mean to sin. Yet sin often leads to regret. I'm going to say it again. To regret does not mean to sin. Yet sin often leads to regret. And so now that we know what regret is, you just said, well, wait, Pastor, you, just, you told us about regret, but you just introduced sin. So what is sin? I'm glad you asked. And so now I will tell you. Sin is the breaking of God's law, or said another way, it's the breaking of relationship with God and his people. See, we sin by thinking evil, speaking evil, acting evil, or just sometimes downright just omitting God's good. See, this, this idea of sin, see, this, this idea of sin in the world and the culture that we find ourselves in, in today, it's quite challenging for some of us, if not all of us, to even hear and face. But really, see, the challenge, see, the challenge is for us to truly be honest, see, because we all know that others sin against us, just like Nabal did to David in last week's message. But here's the kicker about sin. Here's the kicker. You ready for it? Are you ready? Here's the kicker. The thing about sin is we just don't like acknowledging the reverse, meaning we don't like that we sin against others. And see, this is where we pick up today's text in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 14, as we read earlier, where the tables have turned on David from being the hero to now being David, who has become the villain and sinning against others. But the real question is, I mean... Okay, we understand that David went from hero to now being the villain, but how did we get here? How did we get to this moment in 2 Samuel chapter 12? Rather, how did David become the villain uh, guilty of sinning and breaking nearly half of God's commandments, the Ten Commandments, that is? Well, to answer that question, we'll have to flip backwards to 2 Samuel chapter 12, where it reads in verse 1, in the spring, at the times when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rava, but David remained in Jerusalem. Well, 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 what do we have here with this verse? I'll tell you what we have here. This is Bible writing at its finest, y'all. This is a clue that, see, things aren't going well because David isn't going well. Kings are supposed to be out leading, but our man David, he's back at home retreating. Now, he sent somebody else to fight his battle. And I know you're thinking, well, why would he do that, Pastor Alvin? Great question. Who knows? But I tell you this, listen, maybe, just maybe, maybe he got tired from the previous battle. Or just maybe, just maybe he did what I did that night when I said I deserve to sit this one out because I'm not getting rocked anymore. Or just maybe, maybe he thought God wasn't going to let his side lose. Well, I don't know which one it is, but what I do know is that perhaps when you combine David's decision to not lead along with the perpetual struggle that he had with women, because after all, if you read his story, you know that women, this is an area of weakness for David. And with that, you get a recipe for regret, as we find out reading verse 2, where it says, One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, 
She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Okay, y'all. And so, let's get this right. David wasn't out at war leading his army as he should, and so likely is the case he struggles to fall asleep. And because he struggled to fall asleep, he found himself pacing right into the crosshairs of being at a wrong place, a wrong time moment, discovering a bathing Bathsheba, the wife of his top general, Uriah, who, by the way, is away at war like David should be. Which begs the question, have you ever experienced a wrong place, wrong time moment where you saw, heard, or desired something or someone you shouldn't have? How did you handle that situation? Did you inquire to retrieve more information as David did, or did you recognize and regret the moment and flee from temptation before further damage could be done? Now, before you answer that, don't worry about that. Let's take a minute to, we're going to take a minute to hit something here, and it's really critical, and it's this. Though there is some debate and discussion about Bathsheba, about what she's doing and not doing, see, in the end, in the end, this isn't about Bathsheba bathing. That's not what this is about. This is about David's decision as the person in position of power. He could have walked away, see, after seeing what he saw, but he didn't. He didn't. His sin wasn't necessarily in the seeing, it was in the staying. Not in the fleeting glance, but in the lingering look. And because of this lingering look, David's sin to covet Bathsheba not only adds insult to injury, or shall we say regret upon regret, allowing one sin to lead to the next, breaking yet another commandment, committing adultery, as we'll read here in verse 4, where it says, Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. She said, she, then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Mm. And this regretful plot only thickens. But hear me when I say this. See, whether or not we want to believe it, whether or not we want to believe this or not, our ability to sin has far-reaching consequences that often not only impact our lives, but the lives of other people too. See, whether or not we want to believe it, it always impacts our lives, especially, especially when we are the ones in the seat of power as David. Now, instead of David acknowledging and confessing his sins before God to Uriah when David sent for him to come home for war, David attempts to cover up the pregnancy with yet, you guessed it, another sin and yet breaking a third commandment, now lying making it appear as if Bathsheba's pregnancy is at the hands of her husband, Uriah. Which leads me to ask this question. Have you ever told a lie uh, only to have to tell and remember uh, an additional lie to cover the previous lie? Have you ever done that? And how did that work out for you and the others involved? Well, I'll tell you what, don't even answer that. Don't even answer that. Before we do that, let's just remember, let's just remember what happened earlier to me. We'll use me as the example here. As I took flight to hurdle a defender only to be met with a blindsided consequence. See, likewise, 
David's lie and attempted cover-up of the affair and the pregnancy is met with the unexpected, blindsided consequence and response from Uriah when he says to David in verse 11, he says, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in the tents and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. See, the one thing, the one thing David could not and did not foresee was the fact that, that, that the faithful, honorable actions of his top general, Uriah, refusing to sleep with his wife, Bathsheba. See, during those days, sexual intimacy, it was thought to be a source of ritual impurity for those who were actively involved in a military war. So what do we do now? What do we do now at this junction in the story? Well, with the, with the cover-up now botched, David does the next best thing, or so he thinks. And yet from one sinful act of regret to the next, David you know what he does. He breaks yet another commandment, and this time he amps it up. It's murder. He writes a letter, has the audacity to write a letter, requesting the death of Uriah his top, from his top leader, Joab. And get this, though. Get this. Not only does he write the letter, he sends the letter. He has Uriah basically unknowingly deliver his own death sentence by the hand of Joab, who is out doing what? At war, as it reads in verse 16, where it says, So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. And that's just it. That's just it. Not only do David and now Joab, now they both have blood on their hands. Because they killed Uriah. But not only that, see, David's sinful actions were also compounded now because now we got other people involved in this, the other army men who innocently lost their lives behind this. And so again, our ability to sin has far-reaching consequences that often impact not only our lives, but the lives of other people too, especially when we are the ones in the seat of power. And so now, with Uriah out of the picture by what appears to be a casualty of war, as most outsiders would probably claim, David pretends to do the kingly thing, yet dishonoring God uh, by, 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 by uh, making Bathsheba a, a pregnant widow now, he makes her his wife. But once again, see, just like you and I, see, we can't outsmart nor thwart God with and in our sin and so just like that, David, see, he's met with yet another unexpected, blindsided consequence teed up by God himself in the first verse of 2 Samuel chapter 12, where it reads, the Lord sent Nathan to David. And now while it seemingly appears that Nathan has just come on to the scene out of the blue to pay David a visit, Nathan is no stranger to David. In fact, Think of Nathan as that friend, you know that friend who loves to tell you when you got broccoli in your teeth, your zippers down, your, you have bad breath, your socks aren't tied, just kidding. Or more importantly, most importantly, they're there to lovingly tell you when you're blind to your own sin. 
And so, instructed by God, Nathan shares the parable about the rich man taking the poor man's lamb and asks for David's kingly intervention of this, on this matter. Nathan knows exactly what he's doing. He knows that he's positioning David's own heart to confront his own oppressive abuse of power in his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba in the cover-up of their affair and pregnancy. Which begs the question, have you ever been a Nathan to someone? Or have you ever experienced a moment of God actually sending you a Nathan to expose your own sin? How did you handle that person in the moment regarding your truth about sin? Well, no worries. You ain't got to answer that. No worries. No worries. Let's just continue reading and we'll discover how David responded. In verse 5 where it says, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And y'all, just like in last week's message in 1 Samuel chapter 25, where David's anger burned at, at, at Nabal hurling insults at the innocent David, well, David too, he now burns with anger to blindly administer justice and restitution to the point of death, all the while while including God as his accomplice. But here's the thing. Here's the thing that David fails to really do. He fails to recognize and judge his own sin. And see, much like David burned with anger, I too, I too burned with anger, with tinges of shame, anger, and guilt from that acrobatic fall from pride to humility that night on the football field. And it's likely you too, see, you too have lived through similar regretful moments of sinning against family, friends, co-workers, neighbors, strangers, or perhaps simply God himself. See, just like God sent Nathan to David, God has sent Coach Hunt to me to patiently instruct me to catch the ball and wait for the call. And speaking of wait for the call, that's exactly what Nathan did when he said to David in verse 7, you are the man, and that's not positive connotation, y'all. He's not saying you the man. No, he's saying you are the man that's guilty. This is what the Lord the God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. In verse 11, this is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And once more again, our ability to sin has far-reaching consequences that often impact not only us and our lives, but the lives of other people too. See, David's sins not only impacted him, Bathsheba, Uriah, Joab, and the other innocent men who fell victim uh, to his sins, but future generations were also plagued by David's sins. 
Check this out. His sons, Amnon, Adonijah, and Absalom, all died from the sword mentioned in verse 6. And if that wasn't enough, Absalom, his son, actually rebelled against David, his dad, and openly and publicly slept with the plethora of David's wives, as indicated in verse 11. So, let this serve as sort of a, a Nathan warning from God to us, that's, that's me, that's you, that sin is not without consequence whether we live to see it or not. And just like I came to realize and regret my own error in my prideful ways that night in Burke Burnett, Texas, so did David. See, he could no longer avoid God, and he was made to soberly confront and confess his egregious sins when he says in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die, but because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son that was born to you, he will die. And just as David received, just as David received in that moment, the gift of forgiveness. See, the Lord stands open and ready to offer forgiveness and a new opportunity to life, a new covenant, taking away our sin and making us whole again when we believe and repent. See, that word repent, then and only then, when we repent, do we really truly rediscover action, purpose, in relationship, not only with God, but God's people. And so maybe it's you, maybe you're here in the room, or maybe you are online with us today, and you're staring down significant sin in your life. Sin, real sin, much like we discovered in David's text. And like God sent Nathan to David and Coach Hunt, to me, to be my Nathan in that moment. See, God sent a greater Nathan in the person of Jesus. He knew no sin. He died to free us all of our sins, those who believe in him and are willing to confess our sins, the past, the present, and future. And see, Jesus lived the life that, that we couldn't live. He died the death that we should have died. He was buried, and on that on the third day he rose and guess what one day he's coming back to restore all of this making the new heaven and the earth removing sin once and for all and because of Jesus and the working of the cross today you and I see you and I we no longer have to subject ourselves to being held bound or captive by sinful regrets now although sinful regrets may no longer hold us bound though see this doesn't mean this doesn't mean that we don't face the natural consequences of our decisions. However, what it does mean is that you and I, see, we, we have this inextinguishable hope in the person of Jesus to be transformed and redeemed to live better lives and tell better stories with fewer regrets in the here and the right now with God and his people until Jesus returns. Amen, church? Amen. I want you to stand with me as I pray for us. Spirit of the living God, Lord, we come to you as sons and daughters. We stand before you, Father, facing our sin, acknowledging it, confessing it, truly believing, Father, that through the person of Jesus Christ, Lord, we can be forgiven, 
We can be redeemed. We can be made whole, Father, to live better lives, tell better stories with fewer regrets, Father. And so, Lord, I pray that you give us the grace and mercy, Lord, to come before you with transparent hearts, truly willing, Father, to die to ourselves, Lord, to confess our sins for what they are, Lord. But, Lord, that you would infuse us with this hope, Father, to, to, to get up, Lord, and to press forward, Lord, placing our vision, Father, our hearts on the higher calling, Father, of that of your son, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, and amen, church. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.